Thank you, guys. I just want to start with a personal note before we, get, we dive into our text. I just want to th- thank you guys um, on a personal note on behalf of uh, my family, um, on behalf of my wife and I and my kids and my extended family for the care that you guys have showed um, in the past few weeks, especially um, because recently my grandma passed away and a lot of you have reached out um, by sending uh, texts and praying for us. Um, sending us meals, or randomly showing up at my doorstep with brisket. Um, so I am thankful for that, uh, the care that you guys have shown as a church, uh, as a body of Christ around us, has uh, meant a lot. Um, so I'm thankful for that, and I just wanted to um, just thank you, thank you all for that. So let's dive into our text, and before that, let's pray uh, for strength this morning as we open God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another Sunday. Uh, that we get to come and open your word. Uh, We thank you for your word that is true, uh, your word that teaches and helps us to know who you are and know the plan that you have revealed uh, through your word and through your son. And so I thank you for the gospel, the gospel that we get to consider this morning. I pray that for strength as we study but strength um, to live, uh, live in light of it. And so I thank you for this time. I thank you for this church, this opportunity to open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So since a lot of you are still getting to know me, uh, I wanted to fill you in on some interesting things about me. And so one interesting fact that you may not know about me is that I don't really like sweets. Now, that may come as a shock, but I don't really like sugary treats. So if it comes to candy or chocolate or cake or ice cream or even cookies, I don't eat a lot of that. Uh, that, Those things don't tempt me. And I'll eat them from time to time, but I would not say that I have a sweet tooth. With one very big exception, and that is soda. I grew up loving soda, and I would drink as much as humanly possible or as much as my parents would allow me to. I loved soda. I loved it to the point that there was a time in my life in college where various friends would come up to me, and they would say, you know what? I'm going to try to give up soda. And I thought, that's preposterous. Impossible. There is no way that you can do that. And then they would ask, do you want to join me in giving up soda? And I'd say, no, I can't. I, I don't know how that even works. When they would tell me that they were going to give up soda, I thought that that idea was something I cannot even comprehend. I could not even think about what it was like. There's no way that anyone could do it, I thought. At least by not going, you can't do it by going cold turkey. And so I thought, there's no way I would ever give up soda because there's no way I would ever have enough willpower. And so I kept drinking soda. Every lunch and every dinner, I drank a lot of soda and soda and soda. It was a very unhealthy lifestyle until one day in around 2017, I had a doctor's appointment. And I had just recently moved back up to San Francisco, and so I was seeing a new doctor for the first time, and having a routine checkup. And at the end of it, he asked me, was there anything I had questions about? And I thought, yeah, I have a question. For some reason, 
this past year, I lost about 20 pounds. And I don't know why. Should I be concerned? And at that point, my doctor was very curious as my doctor. And so he started asking me some questions. Well, did you start exercising more? No. Well, what about your diet? Did you change what you eat? No. Well, did you change anything? And I thought for a second, uh, oh, I guess I stopped drinking soda. And so he, they, they, he started to ask me questions about that. And I realized that when I had moved up to San Francisco, I just didn't buy a lot of soda. And because my mom lived in the same building as me and she loved sparkling water, she would always have that around. And so whenever I wanted something that was carbonated, something refreshing, I would find some sparkling water that was laying around and I would just drink that. And I hadn't really noticed that I had stopped drinking soda. And instead, I had replaced it with sparkling water. So my doctor asked me how much soda I used to drink and when I stopped drinking it. And so I described it to him. I described that I probably drank multiple cans of soda a day. I told you, it was very unhealthy. And so he looked up like he was calculating something in his mind, and he thought about it for a second, and he said, yeah, that sounds about right. If you drank that much and you stopped about a year ago, you should have lost 20 pounds. And I was in shock. Are you telling me that I lost 20 pounds simply from not drinking soda? And he said, yes. And then I went home, and I, I thought about it some more, and a bigger shock came over me. I had quit soda. When did I quit soda? How was that possible? That was an, an impossible task to me. And then I realized it. I didn't quit soda because of sheer willpower. I quit soda because I found something else I loved more, sparkling water. Now, don't worry, this sermon isn't sponsored by LaCroix. But I learned that day. I learned that day that the key to quitting the vice of soda was not determination. Instead, it was replacing it with something better, the virtue of sparkling water. And that, my friends, is essentially the Christian life. It's not enough to stop sinning by sheer willpower. In order for lasting life change to occur, you need to replace the sinful void with spiritual fruit. And this morning in Colossians 3, Paul is calling us to put off the sins that weigh us down and to put on the righteousness that energizes our Christian walk. Now, as a church, the last few weeks, we've been, the past few weeks, we've been going through the book of Numbers. And the past few weeks, we've been focusing on the grumbling and complaining of Israel, which in turn has made us confront the grumbling and complaining that exists in our own hearts. For me, this is a topic that I've been thinking about a lot the past few weeks, and I've been trying to identify the areas in my own heart that are filled with sin, the sins of complaining and grumbling, or even just general selfishness. 
And so as I thought about what I would preach this morning, I thought, what does our church need to hear? In what ways do we need to be shepherded and challenged? And then I thought, in what ways do I need to be shepherded and challenged? And then I recognized that the the sins of grumbling, complaining, selfishness, those are the put-offs of Paul's vocab. So if those are the put-offs, if those are the, the, those are the things I should stop doing, what are the things that I need to put on? In other words, if complaining is the soda I need to quit, what is the sparkling water that I need to replace it with? And that answer is found in our passage this morning, Colossians 3. But before we get into Colossians 3 specifically, I know we're jumping to the middle of a book. We're jumping to the New Testament, and we're jumping into the middle of Paul's book. And so I want to give us a quick overview of the book of Colossians for context's sake. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Colossae. Colossae was a declining trade town in the Roman Empire. Its population was mainly Gentile, but had a large Jewish population within it. The Colossian church was dealing with a new heresy, and this new heresy was creeping in, and it was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed that matter is evil, spirit is good, and because of that, Jesus wasn't really a human, but merely a vision. And Gnosticism taught that there was this secret higher knowledge that was necessary in order for you to become a Christian. That was the heresy creeping in. There was another one that was coming along with it, and that was Jewish legalism. It meant that people were starting to teach that you needed to be circumcised and observe Israel's ceremonial rituals and practice asceticism in order to become a Christian. These were the heresies plaguing the church. And so Paul writes to these Colossians in order to address these issues. And then he also gives them some instruction about the church in general. So the, the layout of the, of the book of Colossians is chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians are dedicated to doctrinal teaching. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul shifts to practical, practical implications from those doctrines. And so he begins with this. As we narrow in of where we are in, in chapter 3, Paul begins chapter 3 in verse 1 saying, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So Paul explains that since we know the truth of the gospel, here is what is expected of Christians. And then he gives in Colossians 3, verses 5 to 11, he gives a list of vices, a list of sins that Christians are to put off. And he describes these things as like a jacket that you need to take off. And then in our passage this morning, Colossians 3, chapter, or verses 12 to 11, Paul tells us what virtues, what Christian virtues, what Christian characteristics that we need to put on. So we take off the jacket of vices, the sins in our hearts, and then we put on the jacket of the Christian virtues. 
And so that's where we pick up in our passage this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. And in that passage, Paul teaches us three aspects of thankfulness that powers our Christian walk. This morning, Paul will teach us three aspects of thankfulness that powers our Christian walk. Let me give you all three. The first aspect is the power source of thankfulness. We'll see that in verse 12. The second aspect is community powered by thankfulness in verses 12 to 14. And then the third aspect is worship powered by thankfulness in verses 15 to 17. So let's look at the first aspect of thankfulness, the power source of thankfulness, verse 12. Let's read that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let's stop there. When Paul writes, put on then, the then is a conjunction, which means that it points back to the previous paragraph. And in that previous paragraph, Paul talked about how in Jesus, there is now a new Christian community formed. And this Christian community transcends the barriers that our sinful hearts naturally put up. Barriers like ethnicity, religious backgrounds, or social or economic status. So Paul says in verse 11, there are no barriers between Christians anymore. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one unified body. And now here in verse 12, Paul reminds us how that is possible. It's possible because we were chosen by God. The word chosen means elect, called out. We were hand-selected out of the world, chosen by God to be his people. Paul expands the idea of what it means to be chosen, what it means to be elect by God with, with, the, with two things. The fact that we are holy and beloved. The idea of holy means that you are set apart. It means the idea of election. Something is not holy because of its innate worthiness. But something is holy when someone, to, when someone chooses to set it apart. So another interesting fact about me, if you don't know, is that I'm a bit of a collector. There are a few things that I like to collect. I like to collect sneakers. I like to collect these toy figurines called Funko Pops. And I like to collect even Pokemon cards. And so when my kids ask me what the word holy means, I simply point to my toys on a shelf. And I tell them, most of these toys are here not because they're valuable, but because I chose to set them apart and put them on a shelf. I have chosen to set them aside. And most of them are not valuable in terms of, um, of money or in terms of resale, but I simply like them. And my kids know that these are the toys that I have chosen, that I have set apart, and they are, they are to be treated differently than all the other toys in our house. They are not to be played with. They're to be here on a shelf because they are set apart. These are the, the toys that I choose to set apart, not because of their value, but because I simply like them. And so I set them apart. That is the idea of holy. Something that is set apart from all others. 
We are God's holy people because God himself has set us apart. Not only are we set apart, not only are we holy, but we are called beloved. Now, beloved is a word that we can easily gloss over. I know there are certain times where when I read it, I just gloss over it. But just think about what it means. We are loved by God. The word literally, literally means loved ones. We are God's loved ones. Now, let that sink in for a moment. You are loved by God not because you deserve or merit it, but because of the mere fact that God chose you. You are set apart from the world, and because of that, you are God's loved ones. You are his family. God did not choose you because you're good enough. He did not choose you because you're smart enough or rich enough or good-looking enough. He didn't even choose you because you're moral enough. God just chose to choose you before the foundations of the world. And because God chose to choose you, you are loved by him. Do you see how the source of everything, everything in our Christian life comes from God? It begins with God. God is the one who chose us. God is the one who chose to love us. Now let me remind you, the love that flows from God is not just emotion. It's not just a positive feeling that God has towards you. It's not something that can come and go. God's love is demonstrated in him sending his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins, for my sins. God chose you, and then he chose to love you to the point that he provided a way of salvation even when you did not deserve it. Even when you were his enemies. God's love is not a fleeting emotion, but it is rooted in his eternal redemptive plan to choose you and to love you. So I'm not throwing around the word love in a wishy-washy, non-committal, Hollywood, butterflies-in-the-stomach feeling. I mean the biblical love, which is an understanding of who God is and his committed, consistent, everlasting, loyal love. Paul starts his call for us to live as Christians by reminding us that the source of all energy in our Christian life, the source is God. We are God's chosen, set-apart, loved ones. The love of God demonstrated in the gospel powers our lives, and it powers our thankfulness. Because the only appropriate response to undeserved salvation is thanksgiving to the one who saves us. God's love is like a never-ending power outlet. 
He has all the electric energy in the world. And we are like portable batteries. We are like power banks, chargers, whatever word you prefer. The love of God is like an outlet that is filled with unlimited electric energy. And when we have experienced the love of God through the gospel, we are connected to that power outlet. And we are filled up with the love of God. And then we go out into the world and we plug into the lives of others and we distribute God's love to one another. But this love does not originate with us. It's not something we muster up. We are merely a conduit. A power bank can't charge itself. It eventually runs dry. And what happens when we run dry? It's because we are no longer filled with the love of God, the love that comes from God. In other words, we aren't living out the gospel. where We are living our lives disconnected from the power source. That's what's happening when we are starting to run dry is because we have been disconnected from our power source. When we run dry, we need to run back to the power source himself, God. And we need to remember the love that God showed to us, the love that we are filled with. And then when we are filled with the the gospel love, that's when we're able to distribute it to others. If we don't run back to God in that moment, when we run dry, we're just an empty battery pack. No good. Trying to run on our own strength, but the truth is we never had our own strength to begin with. We were always dependent on God. And so we need to run back to God when we feel empty. Because the gospel is what powers us as believers. And it's what powers our response of thankfulness to God. We are thankful to God because we are filled with his love. And we know the gospel as our power source, is the only reason why we can keep going each day. So that's the first aspect of thankfulness. The first aspect is the power source of thankfulness. Now the second aspect, let's look at that. The second aspect of thankfulness is community powered by thankfulness in verses 12 to 14. Let's read that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Paul has reminded us that we are chosen, set apart, and loved by God. And now he shifts to how that affects how we live how we live in community. So Paul commands for us to put on, remember this jacket, we put on five Christian characteristics or five Christian virtues. So if you remember, we looked back in in verses 5 to 11, if you look back in those vices, the sins that, that Paul lists and that Christians are to put off, the jacket they're supposed to throw off. But the list of vices there isn't an exhaustive list but it characterizes what we call the old self. And Paul calls us to to throw off that old self like an ugly jacket. 
And now, connecting it back to what we've been thinking about in the book of Numbers, about grumbling and complaining, that's part of the old self. In my mind, for me, personally, that's part of the old self that I need to throw off. The grumbling, complaining, the selfishness. And so you may be dealing with some of the sins that Paul lists in verse 5 to 11. Or maybe you're dealing with what we, we talked about in Numbers, or grumbling, complaining. Or maybe you're dealing with a sin that the Bible lists elsewhere. Whatever sin it may be, that is what we call the old self. And so you're supposed to throw off that ugly jacket, and instead you're supposed to put on these Christian characteristics. For the sake of time, I'm going to list them and give you a brief definition of each one, because each one is filled with so much that it could have its own sermon. But let me just overview it. The first Christian virtue is compassion. Compassion can be defined as mercy that pours forth from our heart. So compassion is mercy that pours forth from our heart. The second virtue is kindness. Kindness is, is a reflection of God's own goodness that is expressed in gracious acts. So kindness is defined as a reflection of God's own goodness that is expressed in gracious acts. The third Christian characteristic, the third Christian virtue, is humility. And our example of humility comes in uh, Philippians 2, verse 3. Let's read that. This is Jesus as an example of humility. This is what Paul writes. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So this was to, to kind of, Philippians 2 talks about Jesus' his act of ultimate humility. So God himself demonstrated the ultimate act of humility when he, eternal God, chose to die on the cross for his own creation. So humility is not looking to yourself as being inferior or worthless. Because Jesus never thought he was worthless or inferior. Because that would be to deny his own deity. Jesus knows he is, he is God. He knows he is almighty God. And yet, he chose not to lord his power over people. He chose not to lord his power over people, not even his enemies. So humility is not saying, or even feigning to say, woe is me, I'm a worthless worm. Instead, it's saying, I am going to use my strength and my power, anything that God has given me, and I'm going to use that to look to the interests of my brother over myself. That's humility. And along those same lines is our fourth Christian characteristic, meekness, or some translations may say gentleness. One dictionary defines a Greek word as this, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Or as it's often been explained to me, meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. Jesus was meek, but that does not mean he was weak. Instead, he was gentle. Not because he had no strength. He had all the strength in the universe, but he chose to have complete control over his power. And he chose not to unleash it. 
That's meekness. The fifth characteristic of a Christian is patience. The word means long-suffering or long to get angry. In other words, you don't have a short fuse. In each one of these Christian virtues, you can see that they flow out of the person and work of Jesus. Let me say it a different way. In each one of these characteristics, you see the gospel on display. Each one of these characters, characteristics, they are characteristics of an individual Christian. But when each believer is seeking to live consistent with God's love, with the gospel, it creates a gospel-centered, God-honoring environment. And that's where Paul goes next. Paul says, if you put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, then guess what happens? You create a church, you establish a church that bears with one another, a church that forgives each other. When you put on Christ's likeness, you create a gospel community that is powered by our thankfulness to God for our salvation. In other words, you create a group of people who treat each other as God has treated us. Paul knows that we live in a fallen world. He knows that we live in a fallen world, and in order to have fellowship with any other sinner, there needs to be an atmosphere of bearing with each other and forgiving each other. Because Paul knows that since we are sinners, even if we had the same, even if we were all the same, even if we had the same ethnicity, even if we had the same social or economic status, even if we had the same political party, even if we had the same nationality or religious upbringing, we would still have interpersonal problems. Why? Because we're sinners. And now add in the fact that not only are we sinners, but we may have different ethnicities. We may have different social or economic status. We may have different political parties. We may have different nationalities or religious upbringings. There is so much potential conflict in the church. There is so much potential energy built up in the church that is ready to explode. The church is a powder keg of sin just waiting to happen unless we actually believe and we actually live in light of the gospel. So in verse 13, Paul says, we are to be bearing with one another. This means that we put up with them. This means that we tolerate them. This means that we endure them. This means we undergo something difficult without giving in. Paul is saying, you don't always have to air your grievances. Now, I'm not saying that in every situation you need to remain quiet. I think if you have a valid concern, there are ways for you to appeal to someone. There are ways for you to appeal to the church leadership, to appeal to the elders and pastors, to appeal to someone. But in general, if we were to ask someone to describe you, would they describe you as someone who bears with others? Or would you be described as someone who regularly complains about others? 
But let's say you do have a valid complaint against someone. Paul says the, the first Christian instinct that we should have would be to forgive them. Back in verse 13, let's go back there. Paul writes, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul's saying there may be situations, there will be situations where you have a valid complaint against another. It may be honest and it may be valid. But is your disposition to bear with them? Is your disposition to forgive them? This apologizing is not in the sense of where you just flippantly say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Paul says that we are to forgive each other, and he modifies it with this phrase, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The topic of forgiveness always reminds me of the parable of the unforgiving servant. This is something that always convicts me in Matthew, eight, uh, Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. I'll just summarize what's happening, what, what's happening in this parable. There's a servant, and this servant is forgiven an unsurmountable debt, a debt that would take lifetimes for him to repay, something that is impossible for him to repay. He's forgiven that debt. And then, in turn, he is unwilling to forgive his fellow servant a relatively insignificant amount compared to the debt that he owed and had been forgiven. Well, we are that unforgiving servant. If we have been forgiven by God for the debt that we could never pay, for the sins that we commit against a holy, eternal God, and we are forgiven that debt, something that would be impossible for us to ever repay. We are that unforgiving servant if we have been forgiven by God and we turn around to the people around us and we glare at them for not wearing a mask. Or we're that unforgiving servant if we roll our eyes at someone because they choose to wear a mask. Now that masking thing may be a small one, but we do like stuff like this all the time. We're unforgiving often in the different relationships and spheres that we have. We do this in our marriages. We do this in our friendships. We do this between parent and child. We do this with acquaintances that we see on the street. We do this in our small groups. We do this in our fellowship groups, in our Sunday schools. And we definitely do this with our enemies. And so the question is, where is this happening in our life? We need to figure out where this is happening in our life. And we need to put it off. We need to throw that jacket off. Because it's happening somewhere. It's happening somewhere in my heart. It's happening somewhere in your heart. Figure out where that is and put it off. Now, there may be a person who has legitimately sinned against you. But my question to you is, are you willing to forgive them as God forgave you? Because remember, you legitimately sinned against God and he forgave you. Well, maybe this person is consistently and regularly sinning against you. But are you willing to forgive? Remembering and keeping in mind that you consistently and regularly sin against God. And yet, he forgives you. 
Now, if someone is regularly, consistently, and legitimately sinning against you, there may be things in that person's life that needs to be addressed. And again, there's ways for you to go about that, ways and means for you to address that. You can appeal to them. You can talk to, to them. You, we, we have pastors and elders and counselors that, that can help you. And that's what the body of Christ is for. But ask in your own heart first. Are you creating an environment in your own heart, in your own life, where you are ready to forgive? Regardless if that person asks for forgiveness, are you ready to forgive them, the one who has sinned against you? And so Paul wraps, in verse 14, he wraps all, things, all these things together. He says this, Paul writes, verse 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Those are all just buttons on the jacket of the, of the Christian life. But the fabric that holds it together is love. The love that comes from God. Again, this is not a wishy-washy, romantic, butterflies-in-the-stomach sentiment. This is biblical love. This is love where it is action that shows up in our living, in, in our being compassionate, in our being kind or humble or meek or patient or bearing with one another or forgiving each other. But again, this love does not come from us. We are not the source. We merely draw from the ultimate source of love, which is God himself. So if you're complaining because someone has wronged you, it may be because you have forgotten that you wronged God. If you're complaining about life, it may be because you believe that you deserve a certain lifestyle. If you're complaining about not getting enough sleep, it might be because you think you deserve a certain amount. If you're complaining about not having enough money, it may be because you think that you deserve to be rich. If you complain about not being respected, it may be because you think you deserve respect. If you're complaining about any of these things or all of these things, it may be because you have forgotten the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that some of you aren't going through really difficult things that are easy to complain about. That would be understandable if you complained about. But what I'm saying there, if you're complaining, if we're grumbling and complaining in our own hearts, even when we're going through some difficult trials, are we clinging to the gospel? Are we dependent on God himself, our power source? Or are we disconnected? Are we disconnected from the gospel that powers us because even though you may be going through very difficult trials, very hard things. The answer is not to complain. The answer is to run to God for strength, to remember the gospel that saves us. Because if you put off complaining and you put on thankfulness in your life that you are thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will bask daily in that warm glow of the gospel, even despite whatever hardship you're going through. Because you will remember in that moment, when you're remembering the gospel, the only thing I deserve is eternal torment in hell. And yet, God provided salvation for me. 
And if he can do that, he can give me strength right now to endure whatever I'm going through. But if you're living a life that is thankful and dependent on the gospel and on God himself, then your love, the love that flows from the gospel, the love that flows from God binds everything together. It binds all the five virtues together. And when those are lived out in community, it will bind the whole church together. And Paul says it binds together with completeness, perfection. Paul is saying the love that binds us together, the love that unites us is a love that flows from Christian character because that Christian character flows from the very person of Jesus and his work on the cross. God himself is the power source that we draw from. And if you're connected to that power source and giving thanks to God for, that, for what he's done, then you will forgive others. If you've been charged by the gospel, you will distribute compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience in your life. You will bear with one another. You will forgive each other because you are connected to the God for whom we give thanks. And you're empowered by the gospel for which we give thanks. So Paul this morning has taught us about the source of thankfulness. And then he taught us about the community powered by thankfulness. And third, let's look at the third aspect of thankfulness Worship powered by thankfulness in verses 15 to 17. Let's read that. Paul writes, Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now we get to the part of our passage where the theme of thankfulness really pops out. Let me point out how it pops. At the end of verse 15, Paul writes, and be thankful. And then in verse 16, he says, with thankfulness. And then in verse 17, he says, giving thanks to God. The idea of thankfulness in response to the saving work of Jesus, is threaded throughout the whole book of Colossians. Paul mentions the idea of being thankful seven times in the book of Colossians, but three times here in our passage. So here, Paul makes it clear in our passage that our worship is powered by our thankfulness in the gospel. And Paul demonstrates this in three commands. He demonstrates the thankfulness of our worship Uh, or the thankfulness-powered worship in three commands in verse 15 to 17. Let me give you the three commands. The first command is let the peace of Christ rule. The second command is be thankful. And third, the the, the third command is let the word of Christ dwell in verse 16. So let's look at the first command. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let's read that, uh, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So first, let's define what Paul means when he says the peace of Christ. This peace is not an empty tranquility. This is not mindless inner calmness. This is not stillness. 
This peace that Paul refers to is an interpersonal peace whose source is God. God is the one who establishes peace with us and then, because of that, allows us to have peace with each other. The peace of Christ in general refers to the reconciliation that God established between himself and believers through the saving work of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we are sinners. And we have sinned against the Almighty God. And because of that sin, we are now enemies of God. But God took it upon himself to save us from our sins because we could never do it ourselves. So he sent his son, his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross and take the punishment that we deserved. Jesus died, and then he rose again three days later. Jesus' resurrection established and confirmed that he had conquered sin and death and Satan himself. If we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we will be saved from the eternal punishment that we deserve. And because of that, we join the family of God. And in that redemption story, we switch from being enemies with God to being his friends. We go from being at war with God to being at peace with him. And this is the peace of Christ established when God reconciled us back to himself. This is the peace of Christ in a nutshell. So how does the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? It's when we live in light of the reality that God has made peace with us. And because of that, we let peace act as that arbiter of our hearts in community with others. That means that peace is to rule as our arbiter, our mediator, our umpire when we have competing interests. The peace that flows from our reconciliation with God settles our disputes, our conflicts. The peace that flows from Christ is our adjudicator, the judge, the empire, the umpire, the referee in our arguments. And Paul says, to which indeed you were called. Christians are to live with each other in such a way that we demonstrate the peace of Christ that was secured for us on the cross. Then Paul says, in one body. Yet another reminder that the gospel impacts the corporate body of believers. This body metaphor has implications for the global, universal church, but also has implications for our local church as well. The Christian life powered by the gospel is to be lived out in community with each other. In one way, this is why the pandemic has been so hard for a lot of us. For the first time, we couldn't be together. And now I'm thankful for technology and being able to communicate over FaceTime and Zoom and Google Meets. But I think as we've all figured out, it's not the same as being together. And so that's why every Sunday when we gather and I get to see you all and you're not just a floating head on a screen, I actually praise the Lord. Because I took it for granted. 
But now, as we gather together, as I've learned from this pandemic that I don't want to ever do that again. I pray that I would never take that for granted, the ability to be together, to be the body together in person. Because we worship together. We are called to be one body in Christ. That's the first command. The second command is this, be thankful. Verse 15, Paul just writes, and be thankful. This is an unexpected flow uh, of the passage. But really, Paul is just taking an underlying theme and just saying it out loud. Thankfulness to God for the gospel is what undergirds this whole passage. That's why we've been talking about it this whole morning. So we're not going to spend too much more time on this command. Let me just summarize it like this. Thankfulness for the gospel is what powers our Christian life. That's the second command. The third command is this. Let the word of Christ dwell. Verse 16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The phrase word of Christ doesn't necessarily refer to the words that Jesus spoke but the message that was proclaimed about Jesus, namely the gospel. The gospel should be the focus of the church corporate experience. A church shouldn't primarily be focused on its budget or on its facilities or on its social engagements or its programs or its outreach in terms of programs. All of those are good but they're not the main thing. The most important focus of the church should be the gospel, preaching it to itself, proclaiming it to its neighbors, and living it out in community life. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. This means that we are to let the gospel take up permanent residency in our hearts. Paul says that this should dwell richly. It means being abundant with deep and transforming effects. And here, when when Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you, the word you is plural. So our southern friends would translate this verse saying, let the word of Christ dwell in y'all. Paul is talking to the whole church, not just you individually, you, the church, you all. So Paul, how does the word of Christ dwell in us? And so Paul answers, by teaching and admonishing each other. Now teaching is a positive presentation of Christian truth. And admonishing is a negative warning about the danger of straying away from such truth. They are two sides to a coin. Okay, so Paul, we're supposed to teach and admonish. So how are we supposed to teach and admonish? And Paul's answer, singing. Wait, uh, wait, what? I, Paul, I think, I, think you, I think you intended to write, you had to teach and admonish one another by having a Sunday school class or by having a systematic theology class or you teach and admonish in an in-depth Bible study or in a, at least a counseling seminar. No, he doesn't write that. We, the church, are called to teach and admonish each other through singing together. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Sunday school, theology classes, Bible studies, counseling seminars, but Paul doesn't write those. 
He tells Christians to teach and admonish through song, through praise. Paul writes, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. As one writer put it, Christians have always sung their faith. Paul lists psalms, hymns, spiritual songs as a way to encompass all different types of musical compositions. I had never really thought about how much songs teach until I had kids. I'm always amazed on how much information a kid can absorb and regurgitate if you simply put it in a song. My kids have memorized a literal 20-minute song that walks through every major historical event in human history from creation all the way up to 2001. It's so many facts in history that as I heard it, I was just amazed because there's no way I could ever memorize such a thing. I was overwhelmed just hearing all the different points in human history. And if I had just given my kids a list, here's a list of all the points of human history, memorize it, they would never have memorized it. But you put it to a song, boom, they memorize it. Same goes for me. I can sing, uh, sing along to the lyrics of any number of Disney songs, but if you ask me what the first two sentences are in the Declaration of Independence, I have no idea. Because songs teach. Think about your own life. Think about the songs that you know. Think about the songs that you learned years ago and you still know. The ones you learned in Sunday school from when you were a child. Because songs teach. That's how we teach and admonish each other in the church. But if the songs are going to teach and admonish, the gospel needs to be the content of that singing. The medium of music has to be secondary to the message that it teaches. Here, music isn't listed as a spiritual gift, but rather, Paul tells us it's the vehicle in which our spiritual gifts can be expressed and exercised. So Paul is saying, you want gospel truth to dwell in your soul as a church? Sing about it. Your life is basically a Christian musical. So don't throw away your shot because we're all in this together. So Paul, if we're supposed to sing, how are we to sing? Paul says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, thankfulness for the gospel powers the way you worship and you powers the way you worship through song. This is hearty Christian singing. This is singing with your entire soul, giving thanks to God for the gospel that envelops you. This is why for me, there's something refreshing about the time when the word of God has just been preached. And I stand listening to the congregation, and I can hear the voices of all of you gathered together, singing in thanksgiving response for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can think of the many times in my life over the years that I've just listened to a congregation singing about the gospel and my soul is refreshed. And we'll get a chance to sing and respond in just a moment, to sing our thanks to God. 
But let me just point out how Paul wraps up this whole section. In verse 17, Paul writes, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed. This is a phrase that encompasses every area of your life. It's speech and action. Living out a gospel-centered life means that both speech and action, every aspect, every area of your life is surrendered to God. But this is worship powered by thanksgiving as well. Our words and our deeds, that is worship as well. Worship isn't just contained to our singing. Worship encompasses every aspect of your life. Your life is worship. And that is what Paul is saying. You worship through singing and you worship through your living. Both that singing and both that living needs to be filled with thanksgiving to God and in that you worship him. The power source of our thanksgiving is the gospel. And in turn, the community is powered by our thankfulness for the gospel. And our worship needs to be powered by giving thanks to God, the Father, through Jesus, the one sacrificed on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for the gospel because it is undeserved by us, is unearned, and yet you offer it. You chose us, you love us, you've made us your friends when we were your enemies, you've care about us as your children, as a part of your family, and I don't know what everyone is going through today. There are some people that are dealing with very difficult things. There are people who are struggling with their sin or are being sinned against. And right now, they as well as I need the gospel as strength. May you power us with the gospel to live in light of it to worship right now through singing, but even more than that, to worship through living the rest of this week in every aspect of our life, both at home, at work, with friends, in small group and fellowship groups. May we live in light of the gospel this week. May you help us to praise you in both our singing in our living this week. In Jesus' name, amen.